Hey, and welcome. I'm Nicole Ashley Fletcher, and I'm so glad to be with you today. Truthfully, this is an episode I have been excited to research, write, and share since I started this project, mostly because it's been a concept that just has been wrestling me down for quite a while. If you're a curious person or a critically minded soul who delights to be led by the spirit to new, often unfamiliar lands, you may have stumbled upon the geographical region of despair. (laughs) You know, that ecclesiastical place that sits down along the road and cries out, everything is meaningless. What's the purpose of this anyways? Well, I've frequented that region and am currently coming out of it to a softer meadow of meaning and a dawn of new understanding. And it's this revelation of parenting that I'd like to share with you today. It's the final solo episode of the season, and I hope that it sparks a visioning or a revisioning of a role that is very close to the heart of God. And since we're so close to Christmas... We're going to look at a very special case study of parenting. So here is chapter 11 of a grafting story, Parenting Repurposed, Mary and Joseph. Many of us see adoption simply as a way some choose to grow their family here on earth. But God sees adoption as our divine heritage how every person who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord becomes a member of the bloodline of heaven itself and becomes grafted into his family tree. So while this is the oldest story of all time, it's becoming new all over again for us. May it become so for you, too. I'm Nicole Ashley Fletcher. Welcome to a grafting story, a retelling of God's adopted family, and a new telling of ours. As a worshiper who has led worship for almost two decades now, I hear the conversation over and over again about what real worship is. We know that the Father is looking for worshipers who are devoted to Him in spirit and in truth. So from Monday to Sunday, whether alone in our rooms or with congregations across generations and denominations, in our songs, relationships, decisions, and thought life, in our daily rhythms, our money, careers, and devotion, we seek to worship God, to give Him glory and the worth that is due His name, and our families, societies, and the values and choices we make within them are a delicate and intricate part of the spiritual ecosystem of our living worship. If our lives we live and songs we sing are to be the sweet aroma and fire-breathing power He intends them to be, we must let our hearts become broken, changed, moved for what moves the heart of God. And the scriptures say that without vision, the people perish— But also when our vision for the methods and message of God's kingdom is not secure or clear, we can easily adopt a vision that seems as good as, or at least close enough to, what God is basically saying. Charles Spurgeon famously said, discernment is being able to distinguish between what is true and what's almost true. It's often easy to characterize what is bad and what is good, but biblical encounters, characters, and development are nuanced. 
which just means we need to spend more time in the word and in community with unlike-minded thinkers to help us filter the values of the world, the values of maybe our family heritage or culture or society so we can test them against the values of the kingdom of God. Whatever stands up remains. Whatever does not is cast away. So that leaves us with today's question. What is the purpose of parenting or what's the most important job of parenting? Or maybe as an ambitious minded person like myself, I might rephrase this to how do I know I'm winning at parenting? How do I know I'm succeeding? And in order to begin to put the pieces of an answer together, we have to ask value based questions. What does God see as successful? What does the Bible say about our value and purpose? And what do I value, whether biblical or not, that I project onto my children and my role in raising them? In the ancient world of the Bible, and in many current worlds, parenting is intended to make replicas of yourself. You know, teach your children what you value, train your children in your craft, pass on your family business, educate your children in the ways of his or her ancestors, prepare your children to carry on the family name, legacy, inheritance, etc. And this is not bad, by the way. I mean, it's God-given and part of that eternal life seed to fruit to seed multiplicity that we've talked about over this season. But Jesus interrupts this by becoming the rootstock, the firstborn, the one that we graft onto. So instead of training our children to become like us, we try at least to help them become like Christ. But most of the time, we kind of, I don't know, we like combine the two and we end up raising children, uh, you know, to become like Christ in the way that we are like Christ. And this is just a twisted idolatry of a different kind. We end up valuing how we manifest the spirit, how we read the Bible, how we see the world and enter into prayer and dream about the future and engage in relationships And while there are some fruits of the spirit that are evidence of our growth and maturity, the flavor of each is unique to the person. And I have to ask myself over and over, is the purpose of parenting for me and for you, the parent, to receive affirmation, honor, love, affirmation, (laughs) you know, or to honor and affirm my children to become fully alive human beings for the glory of God? Is the purpose of parenting for you and for me as the parent to have my dreams fulfilled, even good dreams, like having a big close-knit family around the table, spending holidays together, etc., or, or to identify, foster, and celebrate the dreams to be fulfilled in the children God has called and equipped us to steward. Is the purpose of parenting for me and for you as the parent to replicate the ways that I see and experience God or to foster the ways that my children see and experience God and then learn from them so I might know him more fully? Now that I have three children, I am amazed at how different they all are 
how God's calling on each of them is specific and unique. And my husband and I get to be co-laborers with our Lord, bringing each to their beautiful maturity. I'm also more acutely terrified at how little I can control them (laughs) and the outcomes of their lives. (laughs) Coming to a more desperate place with Jesus that he would hold and keep them. But providing developmental and spiritual needs as parents is more than just passive. And it's more than just instruction. There's a difference between being told what to do and being seen for who you are. The gardener understands that peppers grow at a different pace than strawberries. Olive trees need a lot of space, but tomatoes need a lot of propping up. Pumpkins prefer cooler climates, but grapes grow better in rocky soil and the heat of the sun. And it's our privilege as parents to take care and take note of the unique varieties of the harvest we're each given. And this is not just discipleship work for our children. It's discipleship work for us. When our eldest daughter entered our family, we received, I don't know, a lot of advice as new parents, a lot of which, honestly, we discarded. But something someone told me really stuck. She said, Your identity as mother or father is lifelong, but your role as parent is temporary. The idea of what she was saying is that successful parenting parents you out of a job. Mom and dad or whoever your caregiver might be is forever a source of love and relationship, but the scaffolding gardener's job of helping a seed grow into a plant is time-sensitive. Anyone with adult children knows that the relationship develops and changes. Children grow into adults, and hopefully those adults have been given skills and practice and a safe place to discover who they are and how to build a life. But the family unit is the first and primary discipleship training ground. Obey your mo- like your mother and father, that commandment. It's training wheels environment to learn what it's like to trust in the love, care, and discipline of a parent God who will be the one parenting you your whole life long. Releasing your children to the Lord is the Lord's purpose. So let's consider an ordinary couple in scripture who allowed their parenting to be transformed by the kingdom of God at hand.
a young girl full of hope and nervous anticipation of the future is about to be married. And in one of the most unexpected turn of events in history, this girl has an encounter with a heavenly being. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and name him Jesus. He will be a great man and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Your son will be king of Jacob's people forever and his kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy Child developing inside of you will be called the Son of God. You know, there's a moment when each mother or father who follows Jesus is made aware that that child belongs to God. Sometimes maybe, I don't know, it comes in a beautiful moment or prayer, but most often it's when we're made aware of how tightly our hands are grasped around the little beings that we adore. Psalm 139 tells us that before our children were thought of by us, his thoughts for them were countless. Before they were formed in a womb, they were formed and made in God's. Before they lived a single day with us, the course of their days were already written by him. As a Hebrew, a firstborn son would have been consecrated at the temple, which Jesus was. He would have taken on the skills and craftsmanship of his father, which Jesus did. And while I can't imagine what Mary dreamt of as a mother, I can pretty confidently anticipate that giving birth to the Son of God was maybe not one of them. But she said yes, despite guaranteed scandal and disgrace, despite guaranteed unknowns. She carried him in her womb for over nine months across geographical terrain as a refugee, escaping death as Bethlehem's most wanted and hiding out with the toddler, knowing that a dozen or so young boys like her own were being murdered in the town she just came from. She breastfed Jesus for one to two years, looking deeply in his eyes and knowing the quiet presence of God. And estimating, based on his age, how many times people eat and the family customs of the day, fed our Lord Jesus over 31,000 meals. God trusted her to take care of him so he could take care of us. But unlike a patriarchal reading of the text, God didn't just trust Mary to take care of his needs, but he trusted her to know him, to hold and comfort him to see him as a vulnerable boy, not just a boy to be raised into a system with a specific set of expectations for Jewish boys at the time, but to see the extraordinary things that were happening around him and to him and spoken by him and treasured them in her heart. In Luke 2.19, that translation says, Mary kept and remembered all these things and she thought deeply about them. 
And while she couldn't have possibly imagined the entire story from beginning to end, the moment the angel arrived and she famously responds with, be it unto me according to your word. She was recognizing that whatever dreams or ideas she had about motherhood were about to be dramatically changed. She had no blueprint for what raising the son of God who would deliver all people from their sins and sit on David's throne ruling Israel forevermore would look like. (laughs) But she agreed that while her son would grow inside of her, be birthed into the world for her to love and cherish and nurture and raise, he was not for her. He was for the whole world. He was for his father's glory. And she would later watch her son be sacrificed and brutally murdered by the intersection of our sin and evil, politics and religion, calling and purpose. The agony she bore in that moment before the cross was when her heart broke and her purpose was fulfilled. While I don't agree with the merry worship of some expressions of our faith, evangelicalism does not offer our Lord's mother enough honor. She's the first Christian prototype, after all, experiencing for the very first time a very living God moving and making home on the inside. A young man full of hope and nervous anticipation is about to be married. And in one of the most unexpected turn of events in history, this boy has an encounter with a heavenly being. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Adultery, even the rumor of it, stains and discredits. So like Mary, the cost of saying yes to this holy invitation would be enormous. And yet this Joseph of Nazareth, this man, so few words are given to in scripture, says yes and becomes the legal father of our Savior. He becomes the only person other than the Lord God Almighty that Jesus would call Abba. He defends his wife and his son with his whole life, protecting them through death warrants and treacherous traveling, loving them with integrity and uprightness, swallowing his pride when he hears whispered comments, and then passing down his father's trade. The Greek word translated as carpenter actually more accurately means builder. You see, wood was expensive and stones were more common in the field of building. So it's very likely Jesus was more of a stonemason. 
Regardless, my metaphoric mind would be satisfied with either, considering both wood and stone images are foundational when it comes to our Savior. But according to Jewish custom, a boy would start learning his father's trade at around 12 and be proficient at it by around 20. This means Joseph would have worked side by side with his son every day for eight years, maybe not including the Sabbath, in some of the most formative years of his life. What do they talk about? What questions did Jesus ask his dad? What advice did Joseph offer him? What affection between his parents did he witness when his mother came to bring them a light snack to enjoy while they took a break from their labor? These are details we sadly aren't privy to. The text doesn't give us much, but it does tell us one very important thing about the character of the man God chose to raise him up. Joseph calls his son by name. Now, just like we learn in the story of Zechariah, who gives his son, John the Baptist, the name John instead of Zechariah, this is an unusual and countercultural practice. Honor and pride belongs to the father and Hebrew men pass down their names as legacy and possession. And the father naming the son is a sign of his authority over him. So when Joseph agrees to be the one to call Jesus Jesus, he affirms his own identity as his earthly adoptive father, abandoning his pride and honest desire, maybe, for a work of God. And in that moment, he also affirms Jesus's identity as the son of God. Two purposes, two callings released in one moment of radical obedience. You see, we don't have a God who just tells us what to do. We have a God who tells us who we are. A name-giving, not a task-giving God. We are called to parent like this too. You know, Joseph of Nazareth didn't write a gospel. He doesn't get many sermon titles, but he, like Mary, becomes a prototype for us, stepping into God's purpose of child raising, not for our glory, but his. I imagined he mourned quietly, maybe. You know, sad that Jesus wasn't his flesh and blood firstborn son. I mean, he could have said no. And quietly, with honor, divorced Mary and married another virgin and had a biological firstborn son like everyone before him. But aren't you glad for his sake? He said, yes. That the pain of the gift became the glory of the gift. That maybe when we say yes through the pain, we end up getting to know the face of God. Because ordinary fatherhood has extraordinary power. Because even though Jesus didn't carry on his father's building trade, the way Joseph might have originally imagined, Jesus did become the cornerstone. And he did build a kingdom that lasts forever. You see, both Mary and Joseph become the living sacrifices of worship to the God 
they parented. Both needed to let go. Both needed to loosen their grip of whatever their ideal situation or ideal family was. Both needed to face their own values and purpose and then let their son, the son, repurpose them. And so do we. Whether you're an adoptive parent or not, so do we. Mary and Joseph provide a new paradigm for all of us. To listen to the whispers of God. To pay attention to the patterns and revealed expressions of your children and treasure them in your heart. To call them not by your name or the identity you want them to have, or the life you hoped they'd pass down, but the one their heavenly Father gives them. To pour your heart and your life, your day in and your day out, to ordinary needs so that extraordinary growth is possible. Mary and Joseph might be the most important parents in all of history, and yet there's so little written about them. Their lives, though, point to Jesus's life. You know, we talk a lot about the disciples and how they walked with Jesus, spent all this time with him, but no one spent more time on earth with the Lord Jesus than his mom and dad. And yet this hidden, precious growing up time is not recorded for any of us to glean from. We just get to see the fruit of the labor. And so for any of you parenting in the dark right now, I see you. Saint Mary, Mother of God, sees you. Your Father in Heaven sees you and honors you and wants to reaffirm your heavenly purpose in Jesus' name and for His glory. You might be on meal 1,780 or year four of ordinary parenting, but He calls you and your children into a purpose bigger than you maybe sometimes hidden from you, but not written without you. So would you join me today as we learn from the Holy Family this Christmas? Let God repurpose our ideas of parenting so that Emmanuel, God with us, can indeed be with us. So what value and purpose of parenting do you need to release to the Lord? What divine encounter do you need to respond yes to? Let's invite the Holy Spirit inside of us like Mary and embody, be it unto me, according to your word, without needing to know the whole story. Let's open our mouths like Joseph and call our children by the names and identities that God has chosen to give them, even when it means sacrificing what we thought it was going to be like. Trusting that God's purpose of what is being birthed and what is being built is eternally worth it, impacting not just the family scene you see now, but for generations to come. (laughs) So Merry Christmas to you. May God be nearer to you now than ever before. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you learned something new and felt encouraged along the way. 
If you are interested in hearing more, subscribe and leave a review so the content and message of this story can be found by other curious listeners. I'd also love to connect with you about any questions to share resources or to hear your grafting story. So send me a message. You can do that online. I'm on Instagram at Nick Fletch or NicoleAshleyFletcher.com. But more than any of that, please share this personally with anyone you know who might need to hear it. I'll be praying for you as you do. I hope to be with you again very soon. And until then, bye for now.